Excellent. Well, last week I was in the United States. Thank you for praying for me. I've still got jet lag. I go to the UK on Tuesday, so I'll be about right Tuesday morning before I travel again. Thank you for praying for me. You know, the Americans, they get excited about everything. So every announcement, woo, woo, not you guys, no, nothing, <laughs> nothing, 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 unless, so, so, so like, I, I, I loved it, like f- food, nothing, together, nothing, church merch, woo, you know, it's funny how we pick up on things, but it is good to be back, it is good to be with you, you are by far my favorite church to be with, and let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 17. What a treat it is to be in God's word again this morning, a word that is unfading, a word that is powerful, a word that has the wonderful ability to give us life. And this morning we do come to a tricky text. It is a text that takes many winds and turns, a text that if you get bored halfway through, you are not going to have a clue what I finished up with. So you need to be leaning in on this one. We want to be paying attention. And if you'd like a title for this morning's message, I've called it The Kingdom now and not yet. And we're going to read from verse 20 of chapter 17 through to the end of verse 8 of chapter 18. This is the word of the Lord. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here, but do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the house stop with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken from the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, "Hear Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? 
I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? As I said a moment ago, there are many winds and twists and turns on this text. If we do not spend time in this, you may leave clueless. So let's pray and ask for the Lord for his help. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, like many of your golden nuggets, they are fine deep in a mine. And Lord, as we come to this text this morning, it's not immediately obvious what you're saying, but when we spend time in it, oh my, what gold comes out of it. So Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Lord, we want to hear your voice. May that be the story this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in the New Testament, we do read and hear a lot about the kingdom of God. It's an often repeated phrase, an often repeated context. In the Gospel of Luke alone, if you've been paying attention, we've seen over 30 references already to the kingdom of God. Now, I don't expect that you've been counting those, but it should be a concept that we are already familiar with. And whenever we're talking about the kingdom of God, in a fundamental way, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about God's people in God's place, under God's rule. Whenever you hear the kingdom of God talked about, and by way of basic definition, it's God's people in God's place, under God's law, under God's rule. And in the Gospel of Luke, this is something that's repeated again and again and again. But the story doesn't start in the Gospel of Luke. The story starts in the book of Genesis, does it not? See, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's people... In God's place, under God's rule. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see Adam and Eve walking with God in perfect relationship and unity. They're in God's place, the Garden of Eden. They are God's people. They're the only people alive. Man and woman made in his image. And they're under God's rule perfectly. And they're enjoying in the garden perfect unity with the Lord, aren't they? There's no complaining. There's no difficulty. It says that God would just come and walk with them. That is what it is to be a part of the kingdom. They enjoyed that for two wonderful chapters. And then chapter 3 comes. And sin comes into the world. And instantly the kingdom is broken. They are rejected. The one thing God says do not do is the one thing they do do. And as a result, they are removed from the Garden of Eden. They are removed from God's place. God rejects his people. He cannot no longer spend time with people in their sin. They are taken out. The kingdom is broken. But then we fast forward all the way through to the book of Revelation. And we see the kingdom restored, don't we? We see a people gathering with Jesus again, with the Lord, from every tribe and language and nation. We see God's people once again in God's place under God's rule. We see his people, a people drawn from all across the world in his place, namely heaven, under his rule. We together will be in a place where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin. We will be worshiping around the Lord for all eternity under his precious rule, which we will want to obey for all eternity. In Genesis, we see the kingdom broken. In Revelation, we see the kingdom restored. In the Gospels, we see the beginning of that great restoration. Because in the Gospels, what we see is D-Day. We see the beach landing of Jesus Christ, God himself coming incarnate to seek and save the lost so that we may be part of the kingdom to come. See, after the passing of four very dark centuries at the end of the Old Testament, 
400 years where they rarely hear anything from the Lord. There is in the night sky over Bethlehem a great company of angels glorifying God at the incarnation of Jesus. They're crying out to everybody who will hear, Messiah has come. Hope has come. Emmanuel has come. And some 30 years later, Jesus Christ himself said this. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God 2,000 years ago was at hand. Now, Jesus, as he says that, isn't meaning that the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom of God has taken place. No, the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom of God is in heaven. It's from every tribe and language and nation worshiping him in perfect unity. But what he is saying is nonetheless, even now, the kingdom of God is at hand. Through Jesus, we can now experience something of the glorious kingdom of God. So what's this text about? Well, that is a backdrop. Here's what this text is about. This text is here to teach us what it all means to live as his followers between the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. The now. The kingdom of God has come. We get to experience it. But it isn't yet fulfilled. That's coming on that final day when he returns. So how do we live between the now and the not yet? Well, that's what this text is all about. It's something I think we can often misunderstand as Christians or not really get our hand around. I mean, I thought we were in the kingdom of God. Well, you are, but I thought the kingdom of God was still to come. Well, it is. How does that work? What does that mean? How are we to live in this? Well, that's what this text is about. Praise God. He tells us. As I have three points this morning. Number one, the now, verses 20 to 21. Number two, the not yet, verses 22 to 37. And then number three, the fuel for the weight. Verses 1 through 8, as Jesus gives us this parable that looks back to the end of chapter 17. But really just one hope. It's my hope this morning that we really will be spurred on as believers to understand what it means to live between the now and the not yet and spurred on to live for Jesus with all our might in this great season of time. Three points then, and here's the first. Number one, the now. The now of the kingdom of God. And this is what he talks to us about in verses 20 and 21. Let's read it together. It says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. But behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This whole discussion was started by the Pharisees. And it started by the Pharisees because they're questioning Jesus and quizzing Jesus, trying to find out, hey, Jesus, from what you know, when will the kingdom of God come? When is the moment? How do we know that it has arrived? See, the Pharisees as a group of people were a busy people looking for signs and doing all they could to observe when is this kingdom of God going to come? And their whole paradigm, as far as they're aware, is the kingdom of God is going to be a restoration of the old Davidic kingdom. It's going to be one who comes through the line of David, and he's going to be a king. So they're looking for different signs and wonders to work out, who is this one that's going to come? And what is he going to be like? 
And they're spending a great deal of their lives thinking about those things. And as far as they're aware, because of their thinking, what they're looking out for more than anything is some type of localized political movement taking place, probably in Jerusalem. And so, Jesus, any thoughts on that? As far as they're concerned, they are looking for something very different from Jesus. And yet the ironic and yet saddening reality is that they have the very kingdom of God standing right in front of them. The one they're asking about is he. Jesus Christ is the king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus Christ is the one standing in front of them who is supreme in personhood. For from him and through him and to him are all things. He is the image of the invisible God. The fullness of God dwells bodily in him. Jesus Christ is the one who is supreme in creation. He's the one who breathed out the sun, the one that numbers the stars, the one that marks off the heavens, the one that sustains all things. Jesus Christ is the one who is supreme in all reconciliation. He's the one who came to give his life away as a ransom for many. They are asking the King of kings and the Lord of lords, when will the kingdom of God come? And what he tells them right here is you're looking for all these signs, but you're missing the point because behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. You would think that it would be captain obvious what this means. It is not. They appear to leave this scene scratching their heads. Well, that was unhelpful. It doesn't help me at all. Did it help you? No like a riddle or something. It's somewhere out there in your midst. They completely can't see it. You know, this is another one of those moments in Scripture where you realize the problem here is not lack of signs. They've had loads of signs. You remember the chapter before where Brendan preached on so well last week? He's just healed 10 lepers. People that have a death sentence. He's healed them all. Time and time again in front of the Pharisees, he's been healing people again and again and again, often on the Sabbath, which they've been really ticked off about. They were there. They've seen Jesus like calming the storm. They've seen him feeding the 5,000. Jesus has done hundreds and hundreds of signs and miracles. The problem here is not the lack of signs. The problem here is the lack of sight. And therein lies the problem of the Pharisees. They were a hard hearted people. They have the Savior right in front of them with numerous signs and yet their verdict is, well, it's not him because they're blind and they are hard hearted. And accordingly, as I examined this text this week, I thought, my, what a sobering lesson to each and every one of us in the room this text is. Does it not? See, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to urge you to not make the same mistake the Pharisees made. Because this is him. This is him. This is the one who is God incarnate. This is the one who says to to us, Come to me all who labor and are heavily laden and I will give you rest. This is the sum of everything you've ever been longing for. This is the one who made you and designed you and sustains you. This is the one who says, listen, you know it's not working out in your life that everything isn't peaceful all the time. I get that because you were designed by me and you were designed for me. I am what is missing in your life. So come to me, all you are weary and heavily laden, and I will give you rest. I'm gentle and lowly in spirit. This is the one who said, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son so that anybody who believes in him will have eternal life. This is the one who says, listen, I got it all. I got you. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you to put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. Because when you do, you get to experience in that very moment, like the rest of us do, what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, even in the now. You see, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we get to experience the now part of the kingdom of God, don't we? We get to experience what it's like to be part of his people. You and I. Because when we put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're forgiven of our sin. And we're redeemed by God. And he adopts us into his family where we are his children and he is our father. We are part of his people experientially in that very moment. And in that very moment, we start to experience what it is to be in God's place. And you think, well, how does that happen? Because I don't remember moving to heaven. No. But through Jesus, heaven came to earth. Through Jesus, he came after you. And he tells us that when we put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, through the Holy Spirit in John 14, Jesus himself comes and makes his home in us. That's why we can say you're in God's place, because God's place is now tabernacling in you. He lives in you. He is with you. And the Holy Spirit that now imbibes your body and imbibes who you are has now written his law on your heart, which makes you want to live under his rule, isn't it? That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. And we get to experience that even in the now. And my friends, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that's your story. You are God's people. Enjoying being a part of God's place through the Holy Spirit and enjoying being under his rule. That's why you want to live for him. That's why there's such a battle going on. Because your spirit says, I want to live for you. I want to follow you. That's what it means to be a part of the now part of the kingdom of God. As he tells us here in verse 21, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And it is. If you're a Christian, in fact, it is in you. And yet, there's also a not yet part of the kingdom of God, isn't there? So I get it. I'm a part of the kingdom of God now. Christ is in me. But we're not there yet, right? Right, we're not. And that's my second point, number two, the not yet. See, Jesus has by now given the Pharisees more than enough to think about regarding the now part of the kingdom of God. They are leaving the scene, it would appear, scratching their heads. So Jesus now begins to offer some advice, maybe even private advice, to his disciples on the not yet part of the kingdom of God. So what he says in verse 22 through to 24 And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, but do not go out to follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. See, what Jesus Christ is doing here is he is preempting a day to come for his disciples when they will long to see his appearing again. See, Jesus posts his death and his resurrection. The disciples are there at the ascension. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, they are there when Jesus says, hey guys, we've got to go. And then he starts going and they want to try and grab his feet. You know, don't go, don't leave us. They are there, they see him ascending to the right hand of the Father and taking his seat. They have seen him go and they have heard him say that I will be back. And he is preempting a day when they will long to see him again here on this earth. 
And he knows that in their longing, they will be in reality vulnerable to the seduction of the various prophetic experts that will no doubt come their way, telling them, look there. Look here, the Messiah has come. He lives in Arizona. The Messiah has come. He lives in the outback. He knows they're going to be tempted to believe him because they so long to see Jesus again. And he's making it very clear to them. Hey, listen, um, don't believe it for a moment. Because when I come back, no one's going to be missing it. He tells them when he's going to come back, it will be like lightning flashing and lighting up the sky from one side to the other. It will be like a million lightning bolts simultaneously ringing onto the earth. From the Middle East to Russia, from, from Europe to Australia, from China to the Americas, no one will miss the coming back of Jesus Christ, okay? And what a day that will be. Every person on the earth will know in a moment, boom, he is coming back. No one's going to be guessing. I wonder if this is him. Yes, it's him! Every knee will bow. There will be millions of lightning bolts in a moment hitting the earth. Great trumpets will cry out. Jesus is coming back. And my friends, we need to hear this. Because if we're ever tempted to think, maybe he has come back. And maybe he's sneaking around somewhere in Arizona. I can tell you he's not. It will be Captain Obvious when he returns. So if anybody ever tells you, I think he's already come back. I think this is him. I remember in the UK, David Icke, once, this, this, this celebrity once thought, oh, just something I should tell you, I am Jesus. And you can see people go, well, maybe he is, maybe he is. No, he's not. He's a lunatic. When Jesus Christ comes back, everybody will know him. Because there will be great, great flashings in the sky. And what a day that will be. He is coming back. And yet before that happens, Jesus tells us, He has to be rejected first. Look with me at verses 25 through 30. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by the generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Right up front then, Jesus wants them to understand that, listen, before his glorious reign begins, a great suffering and humiliation has to happen. This wasn't a new thing for the disciples to hear. Jesus has told him many times that when he gets to Jerusalem, how we will suffer, how we will be handed over, how we will die. We see it prophesied all the way through the Old Testament, how he will be rejected by his own people. We see that prophesied in Isaiah 53. We see it prophesied in Psalm 22. And when Jesus does indeed arrive in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago now for us, He does indeed give his life away as a ransom for many, paying the necessary price for our salvation. And it is a culmination of the exact thing he always said it would be, namely a complete rejection from his people. They hate him. They would rather free Barabbas than him. He will be crucified in their place as his own people reject him. Many people on the earth at the time of Jesus' arrival did indeed reject him. And yet in truth, there were so many people that didn't so much reject him, so much as were completely indifferent to him. 
And in that regard, from verses 26 through 30, Jesus makes it clear that, you know what, there really is nothing new under the sun. Gives an illustration then of Noah. He was busy building an ark, and everybody's thinking about this ark, just thinking, you are a nut job. But as the years went on, they just didn't care. He tells us they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and being given in marriage. They're buying and selling, planting and building. They are totally indifferent to all that Noah is doing with his hammer and chisel until the great waters come and then they are all destroyed. But prior to that moment, they're just indifferent. Lot was the same. Lot is walking around Sodom and it's clear that God is going to rain sulfur on Sodom. So he's telling people, particularly his family, you've got to get out. You've got to get out. Come with me. We need to be saved. And people are indifferent. They're just eating and drinking and building. It's like, yeah, Lot, yeah, just calm down, man. I don't know what you're on about, but thanks for playing. And they are destroyed. And he tells us in verse 30, so it will be, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He's telling us there, when, when I come back, on that day when I return, yes, there will be some people that will completely reject Christianity. But you know what's going to happen more than anything? There will be many people in their hundreds of thousands that will be completely indifferent to me. They won't care less. And as I read that this week, I thought, is that not a picture of Sydney in Australia? People aren't really rejecting Christianity. They just don't care. It's just indifferent. It's just irrelevant. Yeah, thanks for playing. You know, thanks, but um, I've just gone out my boat this weekend. But thank you. What are they doing? Well, they're busy eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage and buying and selling and planting and building. They're indifferent to the call of Christ. Kent Hughes says it this way. It says, Jesus' words describe many people's priorities today. Eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Buying and selling, planting and building. Better homes and cars, gardening, menus and feasts, friends, marriage, children are all good things. Many give such high consideration to these things, making it their whole life. Yet they give no thought to their sin. Listen. For they are shallow, complacent, comfortable, and lost. You know, it's so true. Mr. Hughes there isn't saying all all un-Christians are shallow. He doesn't mean it in the sense of, well, they're shallow. They just think about themselves. No, what he's saying is like what C.S. Lewis was saying, that all these people in the world, they're busy making mud pies in the slums when what Jesus is offering us is a day out of the beach. They're shallow. They just think this is it. They're complacent. They're comfortable. They're not interested in Christ. And because of that, they are lost. Jesus is coming back. And on the whole, people are completely indifferent to it. Even when we tell them about it, they're just indifferent. For some, they are indeed, as we read in verse 32, they are possessed by their possessions. And that's what the reference in 32 is about Lot's wife. In verse 32, we say, he says, remember Lot's wife. And you think, yes, I remember her. Um, is there anything specific? Well, yeah. The, the thing that's specific is that Lot's wife was possessed by her possessions. In Genesis 1 verse 26, we read, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. You see, they are fleeing Sodom and the one instruction from the angels is do not look back because if you look back, you'll become a pillar of salt. What does Lot's wife do? She looks back and what happens? She becomes a pillar of salt. But why does she look back? Well, because she misses her stuff. She misses her possessions. Are you sure I can't get them? 
because I like my stuff. They won't make me comfortable. They, they sort of give me life, you know. So many people in our world are possessed by their possessions. They've rejected the king and they're working in the kingdom and they quite like the kingdom and now this possesses them. And any thought of giving this up is they don't want that. But Jesus makes it clear in verse 33 that this is the way the kingdom works. It's real different to the way the world naturally thinks. In verse 33, he gives us the maxim of the kingdom. He says, for whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. We saw this back in Luke chapter 9, verses 24 and 25 as well. It's the maxim of the kingdom. It's, listen, if you want to just save your life here on earth and give yourself entirely to the earth in light of eternity, you will lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and realize that he has something far better for you than anything the earth can get, then you'll actually save it. Heaven will be your home. And he makes it clear in verses 34 through 37 that there are indeed very real consequences to our choices of whether we choose to follow Christ or we don't. Verse 34. I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, There the vultures will gather. My friends, the coming day of judgment which Jesus will bring in is without doubt consequential, discriminate, and eternal. And he's making it clear that depending upon our choice, whether I'm going to believe in Jesus Christ and make him the Lord and Savior of my life, or whether I'm going to reject Jesus Christ and not make him the Lord and Savior of my life, will depend whether you're this one in the bed or this one in the bed. This one's going to heaven. Because they've gained their life. This one's gone to hell. Because they've rejected Jesus Christ. It's a warning. And it's a gracious warning. Jesus isn't full of empty threats in the Bible. He's not like dangling us over as if like, see, I'm going to show you. He's saying, listen, this is why I came. I came to try and help you. I came to try and help you see the grave consequences you're in. I came to give my life away as a ransom for many so that you could have life and that in abundance. I came so that you could escape this. You've got to choose. What a wonderful and helpful reminder this is as the consequences of not choosing Christ. See, for each and every one of us in the room right now, all of us by name, we all live between the yet, the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. For unbelievers, it's an opportunity then to consider, am I going to choose Christ or not? And you never know when he's coming back. We have to be clear on that decision. But for believers that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the reality that we live between the now and the not yet actually really is an incredible reality. Listen, one day to come, if you are a Christian, heaven will be your home. You will be in the eternal kingdom of God. You will be in paradise, a place where there'll be no more pain, no more difficulty, a place where there'll be no more sin, no more adultery. There'll be no more dentists. Praise God for that. I'm the first to say, you are fired. Thank you for playing. Because our mouths will never decay anymore. We will get to enjoy perfect unity to stand together as God's place, as God's people, in God's rule for all eternity, from every tribe and language and nation. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's what you're going to get. 
One day, the glorious kingdom of God to come, and you will be there. And prior to that day, this kingdom of God has come near to you. Through faith in Jesus Christ, he has started to live in your life. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, both the Father and the Son. He tells us in John 14, make their home with us. The kingdom of God has drawn near to you in its fullness. That's why we can sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Because Christ is in you. And right now, as we stand between the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God, we have a wonderful high and holy calling on our lives, don't we? See, in Matthew 28, this is what we read. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You know, it's so common, or at least I get it anyway. People say, I'm just not sure what I'm meant to be doing in my life. Uh, okay. Well, Matthew 28, that's what we're all meant to be doing with our lives. We can talk about what we can do for a living and where we're meant to live and all that type of stuff. Sure. But this is what we're all meant to be doing with our lives. We're all meant to be making disciples of all nations and teaching them to observe all that he's commanded us. We're called to be making disciples of people. That's the primary and fundamental number one calling on any Christian's life. And as we live between the now of the kingdom of God, having received Christ in our lives, and the not yet of his return, that's what we're meant to be doing. Making disciples of all nations, giving our lives away to tell people about Jesus, to see them added to the local church through baptism, and then taught by pastors and people around them to observe all that they've been commanded in the scriptures. That's what we're all to be giving our lives to as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, that's an incredible reality, is it not? Yet, it is a daunting reality, isn't it? When the rubber hits the road and we realize it and we can't ignore it because it's in our face. Because you've got a pastor that's putting it in your face. It's incredible, but it's daunting. I find it daunting. Daunting because you're aware. This is really hard. Because I struggle with the fear of man. And I need to be telling people about, about Jesus and it can be, can be hard and Daunted because we get distracted by things, don't we? We live in a busy city that tries to pull us in in numerous different ways. And periodically we realize I have totally succumbed to being totally pulled in. I'm embraced in every way. I've forgotten what I'm even trying to do. And it's also daunting, I think, if we're honest, because as we look around people's lives in Sydney, what we realize is they are completely indifferent to the gospel. They don't care less. Most people don't care less. When we lived in Newport, Wales, UK, it was uh, definitely much lower class place to live. And there were some really good things about that. Because you would say to people, honestly, do you ever think there must be more to life than this? That would be what you'd say to get in an evangelistic conversation. And nearly every time they'd go, I bloody hope so, mate, yes. And you'd start talking. Tell them about Jesus. I tried exactly the same thing when I moved to Australia 12 years ago. You know, you meet neighbors and friends and you ever say, oh, so do you ever think there must be more to life than this? And they go, no, no, really. It's great. I'm going to have to change my evangelistic style. <laughs> Why is that? It's because people are indifferent. And we can laugh about it and we can enjoy it. But actually, I do think it makes us lose heart sometimes as Christians. I'm aware that I'm called to go and make disciples of people, but Jesus, they don't care. 
They are indifferent. They're not bothered. They're not even looking for you. I'm so sorry. I'm trying, but it's not happening. Well, Jesus, as always, is one step ahead of us. He knows the temptations. He knows we're going to be tempted to lose heart. And that's what this parable at the start of chapter 18 is all about. That's my third point, the fuel for the weight. Look with me at verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He's aware, I get it. You're going to be reaching out to people that are different, totally indifferent. I'm telling you, on the one hand, the field is white for harvest. And then when you go out to the field, you think, this is going to be sweet. I'm just going to pull people in. They're indifferent. I get it. It's not always easy. There are going to be things about this call on your life that are going to be challenging and difficult. But I don't want you to lose heart. And so he tells us this really beautiful parable to help us see what our fuel is. For this wait between the now and the not yet. This is what he says, verse 2. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. This parable revolves around a judge and a widow. And it's not complicated to at least see what's going on in headline. We are introduced up front to a judge who did not fear God nor respect man. I mean, just think about that for a moment. You are in a court of law and you're standing with a judge who does not fear God and doesn't care about people. Well, that's a frightening reality. And that's this judge. He doesn't give us stuff. He doesn't give us stuff about God. He doesn't give us stuff about any of the people. He's just not bothered. He doesn't respect people. I mean, that is the worst case scenario. And then enter stage door, stage door left. Here comes a widow. A helpless woman who's in difficulty, who is in need of some significant justice and help. So she knocks on the judge's door. She asks for his help. And to start off with, he's like, you must be joking. But thanks for coming. And then she just keeps persisting. She keeps going again and again and again. It's not clear. Maybe she's chatting to him in the marketplace. Maybe she's following around calls. I don't know. But she's just on all the time. I need you to understand. You've got to help me. Please help me. Wherever he is. The judge is aware of this persistence. And so eventually this judge who still doesn't fear God nor respect man cannot cope with this lady's persistence any longer. And so gives and says, okay, then I'll give you what you want. And he gives her the justice that she needs. So what is this parable here to teach us? Well, one of the things we have to understand, like all parables, as I said a few weeks ago, they're here to teach us one thing primarily and one thing alone. So does this mean that if we want something of God, we need to pester him again and again and follow him around cold and do all that? Is that what it means? We're just going to keep knocking on his door like all the time. Are we just meant to be pestering God? No, that's not the point of this parable. Don't do that. 
It doesn't mean we shouldn't persist in prayer at different times and boldly keep approaching the Lord just to keep putting our, uh, our points before him. We should do that. But if we're trying to twist God's arm thinking, if, if I could just get like a thousand people praying, I'm sure he'd answer, or a thousand and two people praying, maybe if I just stay up the whole night. We're not trying to twist his arm around his back. He's a loving father. He knows. This parable isn't here to teach us that we need to pester God when we need something off him. No, this parable is entirely consisting of a lesser to a greater argument. And this parable here is here then to teach us this one wonderful thing. It's here to help us see that if this unjust judge listened to this poor widow and gave her what she needed, then how much more will our loving father listen to us as his children and swiftly give us what we need? That's what it's here for. If this guy who doesn't fear God nor respect man ultimately gave her what she needed, how much is the father going to listen to you as his children and give you what you need? And my friends, in the context, understanding between we, that we live between the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God and can get overwhelmed and daunted with the text, how much more do we need to understand this, don't we? That when we go to the father, he will give us what we need as we live between the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. See, my friends, if we're serious about making disciples of all nations, there will be times when we are rejected. There will be. There will be times when somebody you love that you're reaching out to tells you to get stuffed. And they will reject you. And they may even ridicule you. There will be other times when, they, when we are on the end of people's sin. We live in a broken down world. One day we will not be of it anymore. But here we are a part of it. And there will be times when we are on the end in whatever the workplace is or the school or the education system or the community, when we are just on the other end of people's ranks in. It is going to happen. And there will be times when we will all face indifference as we are trying to reach out to people and tell them about Jesus. They're like, thank you so much. Anyway, what are you doing Friday? You want to do a barbecue? It's so easy to get just disheartened. They are never, ever going to respond. But what this parable is here to teach us is that as we keep looking up and going to the Father in prayer, he will then give us all that we need to keep moving forward in this great mission. Herein lies the great secret of the fuel for the weight, the need for us to keep looking up. Lord, I'm feeling overwhelmed by what you're calling to. I get it. Keep looking up. Lord, they're just so indifferent. I'm trying to tell them about you, but they don't seem to care. I get it, son. I get it. Keep looking up. Keep crying out to me for grace. Lord, they're ridiculing me. They think I'm an idiot. I get it, son. They did that to me too. Keep looking up. Lord, this is difficult. There are things about this that are painful. I get it, son. There were things about it that were painful for me. Keep looking up. I will give you what you need. I am a good, good father to you. Now, right at the end then of the text, Jesus provocatively says this. He says, nevertheless, chapter 8, verse B, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? (laughs) It's a question. It's a question for us. He wants the answer to be yes. And what he's saying is, hey, when I come back 
am I going to find you still running for me? Am I going to find you still involved? Am I going to find you looking up and still trying to tell people about me as you live between the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God? Am I going to find you faithful and crying out to me for help? Because that's what it's going to take, faith and faithfulness. My friends, this is what it means to live as followers between the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. There is a not yet part to the kingdom. We're not home yet, but one day we will be. But we do get to experience the kingdom even now through the gift of the Holy Spirit and the reality that Jesus is in us. And we have a calling on our life to go and make disciples of all nations. It ain't always going to be easy. But there is fuel for each and every step as we keep looking up. So may prayer be our theme. When we're doing it tough, may we run to Jesus. And may he give us all that we need. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your wonderful counsel to us as your children. Lord, as you so clearly explain what it means to live between the now and the not yet of your kingdom. Lord, we long for the day when we are a part of the kingdom to come. We long for the day when we get to see your face and worship you. We long for the day when our hearts are no longer troubled by sin and difficulties and brokenness. But Lord, as we run for you this day, as you called us to, would we rely on Christ and him alone? Would our lives be focused on the fuel for the fight? Namely you. Lord, I thank you that you haven't just left us to do this by ourselves. No, you've said, look to me. I will help you. Lord, did you forgive us for countless times, hundreds of times where we do exactly not that. We just get troubled. But I thank you for reminding us today that we need to run to you. We need to be a people dependent upon you like your son was before you. Lord, help us to live our lives in Christ alone. And help us to run. And may be it all for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.